Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Well, good morning again, and welcome to the Grove. I'm so glad that you're with us as we wrap up a sermon series that we have been in for the last five weeks. Well, this will be week number five. And it's all been based out of the book of James. And the reason that we have been walking through the book of James is because James writes some really practical, really helpful suggestions and guidance on how we can live as people of faith. And what James's hope for us is, and as we've walked through it over the last five weeks, what we have learned from James is that to be a Christian, to be a person of faith, is not about a kind of a garment, an identity that you don and put on for a moment a, you know, once a week, for an hour on Sunday mornings or around certain company or in certain scenarios or environments. It's not this selectively ap- applied thing that we live with. Really what James is telling us is that to be a person of faith, to truly follow in the way of Jesus, means that it should be something that infiltrates every category in every part of our entire lives. So it should inform the thoughts that we think. It should inform the beliefs that we have about how the world is supposed to work, about the nature of our relationships. It should inform how we speak, the words that we use and don't use. It should inform our actions and our choices, our behaviors, our habits. It should even inform the way that we spend our money. James says that your faith should be a part of every category of your life. James's goal for us is to be a fully and wholly integrated person of faith, not just in moments and not just at times and not just during certain scenarios or situations. So this is what we've been working through. And over the last several weeks, we've kind of walked through the different categories that James identifies for us that seem to be particularly difficult to maintain or apply our faith in those categories. And so what we've looked at is maybe the ways that we have maintained our faith or we should maintain our faith in moments of adversity, in times of difficulty and suffering. We've all been through a lot these last nine plus months. And so it's been really helpful to think through what it means to be a person of faith when times get hard. It also, we've worked through what it means to be a person of faith in the words that we use and how we speak to other people, how our words have the power of life and death, Um, how our faith should inform the actions that we have and that our faith should actually manifest into very practical, tangible evidence of the faith that we hold and that we believe. And then, you know, today we're going to be looking at this last category of our faith that James tells us it's difficult to maintain it. And of all the categories that we could talk about, of all the topics that we could talk about this morning, this one will likely feel the most personal. And it will be the one that you won't want to listen to most uh, based on my experience as a pastor. That's because James talks to us this morning about money. Now, money is kind of this dreaded subject at church. If I were to have sent out my Friday email, which I do each and every Friday with kind of a little teaser about what's going to be coming this Sunday, if I would have given any hint or any evidence that this morning we would have been talking about money, at least half of you wouldn't be watching right now. That's just the reality. You would have all found some reason that you were busy. You would have you know, opted out and self-selected to put up Christmas decorations or reorganize a closet in your house. There are lots of reasons why we don't like talking about money at church. 
And a lot of them are really personal, but I also think that there are reasons because of the things that church has done, the way that the church has misused and abused kind of the teachings that the Bible has about our money. And so this morning, if you're already a little suspicious, if you're feeling a little anxious and a little squirmy, just know this. Uh, I'm not going to ask for money at the end of the sermon. Now, we're in the middle of a generosity campaign for 2021, and as a part of that, I hope that you contribute. But I'm going to let you off the hook at the end of the sermon, and so I won't directly be asking for money. You just need to know that up front. I'm not going to ask for your money this morning. Two, I'm not going to tell you this promise that if you give money to the church, that God's going to return it tenfold. It's not some magic investment philosophy that oftentimes gets used and abused at church, where if you give $10 and you pray hard enough, God is going to return it tenfold, and so you'll get a $100 check somehow mysteriously in the mail. Now, I'm not denying the way that God is at work in our lives, and that God is ultimately the source of all of the blessings that we receive in this life. So I'm not saying that that can't happen for you. I'm just not promising you that there's some magic formula that you can be a part of that allows God to financially bless you. I also don't believe, and I'm not going to tell you this morning, that God's goal is for all of us to become billionaires that God's hope for our lives, that the greatest hope that God has for our lives is that we would all be fabulously rich. I don't know and I don't believe that that's what Scripture teaches about what it means to live a fulfilled and rich and abundant life. I don't think that's the evidence that we see in Scripture. And I'm also not going to beat anybody over the head this morning uh, and tell you that money's bad and that if you have a lot of money, you're bad. But what I'm going to point to, as James teaches us this morning, is that money's a tool. And like any tool, it can be used for good and it can be used for ill. And so because of the nature of the tool, it requires a whole lot of responsibility on our part. It is a really powerful tool. It's a really effective tool. There's a lot of amazing things that happen when we steward and we use this tool well. But it is also a dangerous tool because of the potential for risk, for the potential for ill use, for misuse, for the ways that we can allow some of the lies that surround money uh, to kind of infiltrate our lives and infiltrate our heart. And so I just want to caveat everything this morning. So if you're still hanging on and you're still with me this morning, congratulations. I'm glad that you're with us. I think this is actually going to be a really important lesson that James has for us because of the way that he talks about how we should think and feel about the money that we have or the money that we will have one day. So we're going to jump right in, and I want you to hear James's encouraging words to all of us this morning. This is James chapter 5, and I'm just going to read uh, the first half of it to you, and then we're going to work through it, and then we'll, we'll land the plane with the second half. Here's what James says. Buckle up. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Consider the treasure you have hoarded in the last days. And if you're like me, anytime you come to passages like this in Scripture, you just quickly turn the page because it's just easier to skip it than to spend time with it. It might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It might even make you feel bad. Uh, the other thing that it might do is that you might just disregard it because you don't think it applies to you. But I want us to work through this passage this morning because I think that there is a warning that James issues. 
There's also a lot of criticism, and there's also a lot of condemnation that exists in here for his original audience. Uh, but I think for us, it should serve as a warning, um, kind of as, you know, some advice on how we can and how we should steward the money that we have. And he also identifies a couple of lies that we're inclined to believe. Now, here's the thing that I think is interesting. Immediately when we come to a passage like this, just in the, immediately in the first several words, come now, you rich. And when I'm reading this at home, maybe as you're hearing this now, the first thing that I think of when I come to this is, come now, you rich. Ah, he's not talking about me. You, we automatically assume that when James in this context and when Scripture in general talks about rich people, they're not talking about us. And the reason that we always assume that they're not talking about us is because we can all think of somebody who has more money than we do. We can all think of somebody who is richer than we are. And if there's somebody who's richer than we are, then we aren't rich. But I think we're just lying to ourselves, to be honest. In this context, in the way that James is using this word, this title falls squarely in front of all of us. This is an applicable term that we could all be counted on as. Come now, you rich. So if you're inclined to think he doesn't mean me, he means you. Even if you're like, yeah, but I can think of lots of people who have more money than me. He still means you. If you make over $25,000 a year, you are in the top 2% worldwide. My guess is for most of you listening this morning, he means you. This is who he's talking about. And even if you don't meet that threshold, you're still at least in the top 5% worldwide or the top 10% worldwide. I've never been top 2% in anything. I'm top 2% in this, as my guess is many of you are. And so James' title, Come Now You Rich, he's talking to us. But here's what he says. He says, listen, there's some, there's some misery coming your way for those of you who are rich. And the reason that there's misery coming your way is most likely you have bought into two lies that surround money and wealth. And they're dangerous and they'll grab you and they'll pull you in and they'll pull you down. And so I want to identify for us this morning these two lies that happen surrounding our money, surrounding wealth, surrounding richness, uh, and the way that we can maybe avoid them going forward. So here's the first lie. The first lie that we see James point out is this lie of scarcity. And this is the, the lie that money whispers that says, you don't have enough. You aren't rich enough. There's somebody richer. You need more. There's lots of ways this happens in our lives, but maybe uh, an obvious way is the way that we're constantly acquiring more things. This is simple. I like shopping. I don't shop for lot, in lots of different categories, but there are a couple of categories that I continually shop in. Why? Not because I have need. Not because there's some deficiency or some scarcity that exists in my life, but why? Because I subtly buy into the lie that, oh, if I had this, if I got this, if I bought those things, there would be something that would happen to me internally because of the acquisition of those items. There'd be some amount of hope, some amount of peace, some amount of fulfillment and joy. Uh, there'd be the reduction of anxiety, some of the reduction of fear. My, my, my security is not intact until I have these things. And once I got these things, then there'd be greater measures of peace and joy and satisfaction in my life. And we all know, just like we're all about to experience at Christmas, it's a lie. Because inevitably, what happens? We buy the new stuff, we get the new thing, there's this momentary release of dopamine in our brains and we feel good about what we've just purchased. And then it wears off. And then we realize we need something else. 
And then once we go get that, we realize we need something else. And it's this constant kind of hamster wheel that we stay on. And it just spins and spins and spins and spins because there's always more that we could have. You know, if, if you're on social media in any measure, you are bombarded hundreds of times a day by all of these messages about what you don't have, that you could have, that you need and should have. Because if you had the things that they're telling you that you need, then you'd be happy. Then you'd be at peace. Then you'd have security or comfort or any of the things that we long for in our life. See, this is the first lie that wealth and money tells us, is that there's a lie of scarcity. There's not enough, and you need more. There was an interesting study that was done by Fidelity some time ago, and they surveyed a group of people who had uh, over a million dollars in investment assets. So this excludes retirement money. This excludes 401Ks or 403Bs or Roth IRAs or any of the letters and numbers and acronyms. It excludes all of that, and it also excludes uh, real estate and, and properties. So it doesn't take your home value or any of your vacation homes or any of the things or the timeshares that you own. So it's just a million dollars or more in investment assets. And this is what they asked them. They did a survey, and they asked them if they felt wealthy. Now, they didn't use some objective measurement. They didn't say, can you quantifiably identify that you have more money than X percent of the people in the country or in the world or whatever it was. They asked them this, this question about the heart, about how they felt about their emotions. So they asked this group of people, over a million dollars in investment assets, do you feel wealthy? And my guess is, what you can predict, is that over 42% of them said that they did not feel wealthy. Now my guess is a lot of us this morning will be like, well, let me get in line because I'd be happy to feel wealthy with over a million dollars in investment assets. And I know that there are lots of you who are listening who have over a million dollars in investment assets, and so maybe you do or don't feel wealthy this morning. But I think it's so interesting, the question that they ask, because the question that they ask gets to the heart of the lie. It's all about this feeling, this sense of relativeness, about whether or not we feel like we have enough. And the danger in the lie of money is that if allowed, it'll whisper to us, no, you don't have enough. You're not wealthy. You don't have all that you need. You need more. You need to acquire. You need to get and this can happen in little silly ways, like with your children, you know, who need the next toy or the next video game for some amount of happiness or satisfaction or status amongst their friends. But there's always something new coming out. There's always the next thing. There's always the next opportunity to finally get what we need. We live this life day in and day out. This is why some of us, we you know, have issues with our finances because we have bought into this lie and we have overconsumed and we have overacquired, you know, greater than our financial means. And so it has put us into, you know, difficult and hard situations because we have so bought into this lie that we need more and more and more. And we even need so much so that we need more than what we're actually able to afford. That's why we have, you know, unprecedented levels of debt in our, our societies because of this lie. You got to have more. You got to have more. Well, James goes on. Not only is there a life scarcity, but there's another lie. So in verse 2, he says, Listen, your riches, they have rotted. Your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver, they have corroded. Now, this, 
the riches that have rotted, the garments that are moth-eaten, the gold and silver that have corroded. That's just, you know, food, clothing, and, you know, money. This is kind of the first century categories that are most easily identifiable as indicators of wealth. They're not all that different than today, but you can imagine how we might change the illustration if we were talking to a modern-day audience about the ways that um, the things that we have are not able to last, are not able to sustain. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, there's an inevitable end to the wealth that you accumulate, to the possessions that you have. And this is kind of the second lie that James identifies. And the second lie is this. It's the lie of security. It's this idea that once you got enough, even though the first lie is you'll, there's not enough, but the second lie builds on the first lie. It says, but once you get enough, then you can relax. Then you can rest. Then you don't have to work so hard. Then you don't have to have that second job. Then you can spend time with your family. Then you'll be able to retire. Then you'll feel safe. Then you'll have the security. Then you'll have the peace. Then you'll have the release of anxiety or the release of worry. This is the lie that James is identifying here. The second one is the one of security that with enough, you can be secure. The first lie is the lie of scarcity, that you don't have enough right now. The second lie is the lie of security, but that once you get enough, then your future is secure. You can trust in it. You can put your hope in it. You can count upon it. And this is the big issue as people of faith is when we believe that all of our happiness, all of our meaning, all of our fulfillment can be found in money, in the things that we can acquire, it takes our eyes and our focus off the one who designed us and the one who exclusively we are designed for, and that's God. And so James is saying, here's the problem as people of faith when it comes to your money. You buy into these two lies, and the first lie causes you to chase after acquiring all of these things instead of pursuing God. It's because you believe that there can be something that you can find in, you know, the pursuit and the acquisition of stuff that actually will never satisfy. There's one place you can find your satisfaction, and that's in God. And James is saying the other problem, though, is this other lie of security, that once you get enough stuff, once you have a large enough investment portfolio, once there's enough zeros and commas in the bank account, once you have that second home or the nicer home or the newer car or whatever it is, Whatever it is that you are believing the lie about, James is saying then it tells you that your future is secure. You can relax. You can trust. You can put your hope in it. And come on, we all know that's not true. We all know people who have found themselves in situations that money can't fix, whether it was a relationship issue or a health issue or some other type of circumstance or situation that they find themselves in that no amount of money could ensure that they were able to navigate that. There's no amount of money that can buy time. This is something that I see often as a pastor. People who have amassed a great deal of wealth at the expense of time with their family. And so at the end of their life, they're plagued and riddled with regret because they have all of this stuff at the expense of a relationship with their kids or at the expense of a relationship with their significant other or spouse. And so they have this immense, you know, expression of guilt and regret because they would immediately give it all away to have time back, to redo it, to go back and to fix their relationships. Maybe some of you are dealing with this right now. This is, this is the harsh reality of the lie and the falsehood that once you get enough that you'll have security. 
I've also sat bedside by really wealthy people and had doctors come into the room and tell them that there was nothing else that they could do. Even though they could afford the finest medical treatment that our country could provide, they were out of options. Again, this is another hard and painful and just sobering reality to this lie that money promises us, that if you don't have enough, but once you get enough, then you can, then you can be secure. Then you can place your trust in it. Then you can place your hope in it. And James is saying, no, as people of faith, we have to be wiser. We have to be smarter. We have to recognize that fulfillment, happiness, contentment, that can only be found in one place, and that's God. And our hope and security and the trust that we have in our future, that can only be secured by one person. Again, God as well. It doesn't mean that, like we've talked about in previous weeks, that everything is going to be okay that will, you know, avoid and miss any hardship or difficulty. But it's that even in the midst of those things, we're not alone. And that ultimately, as this all will resolve and conclude, you know, in the next life, that we have life in God. We have a fulfilling of our life in God and a flourishing of our life in God. James is saying this is the only place that it can happen. But one of the most insidious places that whispers to us and invites us in about how we are insecure and there's not security in our life around our status and our, you know, where we can place our hope and our trust. James is saying it's money. It might be the biggest liar of all because of how, how obvious and how prevailing and how common these lies are. Just turn on the TV, open your phone, turn on the computer, and we are constantly bombarded by these whisperings, these urgings, these beckonings, these callings and lies about how we can finally have the relationship we want. We can finally have the career that we want. We can finally have the family that we want or the home that we want or the life that we want. It's all attainable. We just need a little bit more. We just need a little bit more. And like anybody who's done a home renovation project, inevitably what happens is you do the home renovation project and then what happens? You're like, oh, once we fix the kitchen, then we'll be happy with the house. And you fix the kitchen. And then what happens? Because you fix the kitchen, you realize that the bathrooms need to be fixing. So then you do the thing and you fix the bathrooms. But then once the bathrooms are fixed, then you realize that the next room and the next thing and the next thing, it never ends. It's this constant cycle. It's constantly calling. You need more. You don't have enough. You need more. You don't have enough. And if you could get enough, then you would be secure. And this is where James goes on next. He causes us to kind of stop and to think, to evaluate. And he uses this word. He says, consider the treasure. He says, consider your treasure that you've hoarded in the last days. Consider your treasure. And now this, this word, this, this language of treasure, James is referring back to um, some words and some teachings that Jesus used in the Sermon of the Mount. If you've been with us in previous weeks, you recognize we talked about how James draws from two primary sources, the wisdom of the Proverbs in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, and then Jesus' teachings primarily in the Sermon of the Mount. And this is exactly what James is saying. He says, consider your treasure, the things that you have placed your hope and trust in, the things that you have hoarded. Consider your treasure. He calls back to what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on Mount, where Jesus says it this way. He says, listen, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is the point. And this is where James is going with this. 
This is what Jesus teaches us. At the end, Matthew 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Essentially, Jesus is saying, do you want to know what's going on in your heart? Do you want to know what you value most? Look at your bank account. Look at your financial statements. Look at the way that you spend your money. Jesus is teaching, James is echoing this idea that where you spend your money determines kind of where you spend your treasure, what matters most to you. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's kind of a sobering thought to think about what my financial statement reveals about the state of my heart. To think about my credit card summary and all of the places that I spend my money, what does it say about the type of person that I am, about the things that I value, what I actually believe? It's easy. It's easy for us to fool ourselves, to deceive ourselves, to lie to ourselves about what we think we believe, about who we say we are, about the choices that we make or don't make, about the type of life that we live. And James is saying, do you want to be really honest with yourself? Go over your financial statements. You want to have a kind of a transparent moment? Look at where you spend your money. Where does your money go? Does your money go in alignment with the things that you say that you believe, with the way that you claim to be a person of faith? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe the way that your money goes and how you spend your money reveals that you are constantly searching for security. Maybe it's personal security. Maybe it's relational security and security of status and appearance. Maybe it's in a a family security that you want enough that you feel like the nest is finally stable enough to provide for your kids. Maybe it's security of opportunity for your children or for a loved one. James is saying where you spend your money is really telling about where your heart is and what your heart values and prioritizes and where you actually place your trust. And he goes on. He says, so consider your treasure. Consider the treasure you have hoarded in the last days. And I think that word that he uses is so important because I think ultimately this is the danger. This is the danger of money. Again, money is not bad in and of itself. It is a tool that we can use for good or for ill for benevolent, generous purposes, or for selfish purposes. And James is saying that when we buy into the lies of money, that we don't have enough, and if we get enough, then we'll be secure, then we become a hoarder. And we've all seen the TV shows, and we all can conjure up the images in our mind of people who are actually hoarders, who live in these houses filled with what many of us would just describe as junk. And why do they do that? Because there's some kind of disorder in their thinking and in their belief system about the value that this stuff has in their life, that they need it, that their life is incomplete without it, that they have to have it. And so they hoard and they keep and they acquire and they keep and then they go out and find more. And for many of us, we would look at it and say, none of that has any value. But to them, all of it has value because there's such a sense of scarcity. There's such a lack of abundance in their life. Now, it's easy to pick on the people who have piles of old newspaper and you know, old plastic bags and, and you know, empty bottles in their house and they keep you know, random weird stuff like that. It's easy for us to kind of use them as the punching bag. But if we're being honest today, what are the ways that we're hoarders? What are the ways that we acquire more than we need? We acquire out of this sense of scarcity. We, we acquire out of this lack of abundance. I mean, if I'm being really honest and transparent this morning, I have way more clothes than I need. I hoard clothes. 
Now, could I find somebody that I have less clothes than? Sure. I could do that and make myself feel better. But, well, actually, I mean, I'm okay compared to. I could always self-justify that I hoard other things, too. There's ways that I spend money on myself to, you know, exercise equipment and weights and things like that. And so you could walk through my house and be like, dude, you've got a problem. And then I would be like, no, I don't see it. Because to me, in those categories and in those areas, I've bought into this lie that I don't have enough, that I need more. Because once I get more, then I can be secure. So it's easy to, to pick on others. But if we're going to be really honest this morning, when we buy into the lies, the danger is we become a hoarder. And like with any person who hoards, there's no life there. There's just an accumulation of stuff and their, their pursuit of more stuff becomes the purpose of their life. And James is saying, and that's where we get off track. There's no abundance of life when we hoard. There's no abundance of life when we have a scarcity mentality, when we have a fear of security mentality, when we buy into the lies that money can whisper to us. James is saying, that's not the life that God calls us to. That's not what it means to live as a person of faith. That's not what it means to be a fully, wholly integrated a person who places their trust and hope in God and God alone. And so this is where he goes. In verse 4, he says, listen, here's what happens when you be can become a hoarder. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed the fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying, crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters had reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who's not capable of resisting you. Now you say, Stephen, this sounds really strange. I don't feel like I've manipulated, exploited, taken advantage of anybody in, you know, in the way that I've lived my life or the way that I handle my finances. And what James is saying calls back to a previous understanding of how the world works, of how the system is supposed to work. Now, in the Old Testament understanding, people owned land, but the land wasn't theirs. The land was God's. They were stewards of the land that they had temporary ownership of. Their ownership, their possession, was just a moment, was just temporary. And so they were stewards of what they had because they recognized and they acknowledged that all the stuff that, that existed, all the blessings that they had, all of the resources that were available to them came from God. God was the source. It was not up to them to acquire for themselves, but they were the temporary stewards of this land, of these resources. And so the people that worked the fields, the people that participated in the harvest, they were a part of the system that they were in charge of stewarding. But what happens over time, inevitably, is we become hoarders. We begin to believe the lies that we don't have enough and that we need more. And if we don't have more, our future's not secure. And so what happens is when we become hoarders, and that we have this scarcity mentality, we start to exploit, we start to cut corners, we start to find ways that we can gain more and more and more. We can see easy evidence of this in some of our corporations and companies today. Listen, if you have an employee who works full-time, you have to pay them benefits. That's the rule. Great. We'll have our employees work 39 hours. We'll have them work one less hour than full-time so we don't have to employ pay them benefits. If you have somebody who works eight hours a day, they have to have a mandatory lunch break and other breaks. Great, we'll have people work seven hours and 50 minutes a day. Okay, well, 
uh, if you have a certain number of employees, you have to follow these rules. Great, we'll treat everybody as interns, as contract workers. Um, that way we can navigate and skirt the rules. Why? Because at certain moments when we buy into this lie of scarcity and this need for more security, when money becomes the goal and the God, we do whatever it takes to get more of it at the expense of the people that we're supposed to be in charge of, at the people that we are supposed to be stewards of. And this is the accusation that James is making for the wealthy people in that moment. He says, listen, you have all of this land, but you're exploiting the people who are working on it. You're withholding their wages, and you keep them back by fraud. And so the people who work your land, the people that you're supposed to take care of, you're not doing your job because all you're concerned with, all you're focused on, is extracting every last ounce and drop of resource from the land that you've been given, the one that you're supposed to be a steward of. James is saying this is a big problem because what ends up happening when it's all about how much you can get out of what you have, you stop caring for the people around you. You stop living generously and open-handedly. You fail to acknowledge your responsibility as a temporary steward. And so James is saying the choice is really simple, people. You can either buy into the lies that money has for you and live your life as a hoarder, Someone who's constantly in need of more, always anxious, never feeling secure, willing to exploit and to hurt and to ignore the needs of others. You can live as a hoarder. Or, James says, the choice you have is to live as a steward. To recognize that in God, we have enough. It may not be all that we want. There may be people with more. But we have enough because God is the source. And so it is not up to us to secure our future secure our trust and hope that everything will be okay. We can place our hope and trust in God and to recognize that as stewards, we have been given resources. We have been given blessing. We have been giving, given people who we're in charge of, that we have to take care of, that we have to be responsible for. There's a responsibility to them that leads to a generosity from us. I think a really kind of silly but simple example of some of the necessary rules that exist in this way um, happened in my childhood. So I have a younger brother, and I'm four years, almost four years older than he, and so through the entirety of our relationship and his existence, I have been older, stronger, and more cunning. Uh, not smarter, just more cunning, just by the nature of personalities. And so what inevitably would end up happening is at times at dinner or in any situation with family, parents, you know this with your kids, there inevitably becomes a limitation in resources. There's some amount of scarcity. Most notably for this illustration, it came when there was one last brownie. So what would happen if left to my own devices, without the supervision and the parental oversight, I would figure out a way to manipulate, to rob, to beat up, take the brownie from my brother because I wanted it. I wanted more brownie. I bought into the lie that if I had more of the brownie or all of the brownie that I would be happy and I wanted to be happy even at the expense of my brother. So my dad devised a rule. He came up with a rule that was really simple. One of you gets to cut the brownie. The other of you gets to choose which piece they want first. Now, I thought it was a particularly ingenious rule because it protected the kind of the inevitable gravitational pull that we have to more. It 
issued and inserted some amount of equality, of fairness, of responsibility to the person who was cutting the brownie, the person who was kind of dividing and separating out the resources. It recognized that, listen, there's a limitation in how many brownies that we have. You didn't make the brownies, and so it has to be fair in the way that the brownies are shared. And so one of you gets to choose how to cut the brownie. And so you wouldn't believe the lengths to which my brother and I went to measure out these brownies. There would be rulers and tape measures and all of the things, and you'd use a scale to make sure that even if they weren't the same size, they weighed the same amount because that actually mattered more in terms of fairness and equality to the brownie as it was being distributed. Because we recognized that we now had vested interest in the outcome of the process. It wasn't just here, well, let me cut it, and then you get the smaller piece. It was, no, okay, if we've got to share this, then let me be really intentional and responsible about where I cut this. And then you cut, and then the other person will get to choose. Hmm, I think I want that piece. Okay. Well, you have to live with the consequences because the other person was the one who cut it. Now, it's a silly, simple little rule. But all throughout Scripture, God has given us rules like this to protect us, to help ensure that there's some amount of responsibility that would then translate into some amount of generosity. Now, one of the most obvious examples when we talk about money at church is this rule of the tithe. And it's this idea of the first tenth of whatever we have goes to God. Now, it wasn't the second tenth or the eighth tenth or the tenth tenth, but it was the first tenth. Why? Because of the awareness and the reality of the fact that money always whispers those lies that you don't have enough. But if you could get enough, then you'd be secure. And so what's the solution? Well, one person gets to cut the brownie. The other person gets to choose which part of the brownie they want. You give the first tenth of everything that you have to God. Why? Because it allows you to recognize that you can live with less than you think you can. It counteracts the lie of scarcity. It acknowledges that it's okay to do with less than what you originally had, and life's going to be okay. And then as you give one-tenth to God, it also acknowledges that all of the blessings that we have in this life, all of the resources that we have, they don't come from us. We're not the source of all the goodness in our life. They come from God. And so the gift back to God is an acknowledgement that God is the source of blessing. And so it counteracts the second lie, this lie of security, that if we could get enough, we could be the source of our own security, that we could place our hope and our trust in our ability to acquire enough stuff for ourselves. So that's why we have simple rules like the tithe. It's a rule that I believe in, that I think has made an impact and a difference in my heart in in the way that I'm able to navigate the issue of money because just like everybody else, just like you, just like me, I am tempted to want to acquire more. I'm tempted to believe the lies that I don't have enough and that if I could get enough, then my future would be secure. And so I'm really committed to giving 10% back to God because it helps me stay accountable. It helps me stay responsible. And it also encourages me to live a generous life. Now the point is not, oh, look at me and the good things I do. I still struggle with all of this stuff, but I'm using it as an example to hopefully help us understand how important generosity is in our life. The goal of this, James says, is to be able to let go, to give away, to share, to be stewards of what you've been given. Because generosity is the antidote to the greed that we feel, the pull of our heart towards acquiring more and more and more. It allows us to let go and to give away and say, I can do just fine with a little bit less. I don't have to have all that I feel like I need. God can be what I want most. It doesn't have to be more and more and more. 
So that's why I believe in the power of generosity in our lives as people of faith. I think it, it is a tangible demonstration of what it is that we claim to profess and believe. Just like James points out, where your treasure will be, there your heart's going to be also. And so as people of faith, where we spend our money, how we spend our money, how we steward our resources, I think is directly linked to what it is that we actually believe, a way to live out a fully integrated life of faith. But I also believe in the power of generosity to change the human heart, to help us understand that we don't have to have all that we feel like we need to counteract the lies of scarcity and to counteract the lie of security that it allows us to shift and to focus and to place our hope and trust in something other than our wealth and our money and our resources. And so, like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I'm not going to ask you for money. But we are in the middle of a 2021 commitment campaign. This is the time of the year when we start to begin to talk about what making a commitment to the church financially looks like for the following year. And I believe this is really important. I believe that the church is the best place that you could give your money because of the way that it impacts the human heart. It deals with things on a soul level that no organization or institution in the world deals with. Very few places will teach you about giving money away to others because of the, of the way that it impacts yourself. They'll talk about the needs in other places and the way that other people might be impacted by your generosity, which is all true. But nobody else teaches you to be generous for the sake of the things that transform and change in your own heart like the church does. That's just one example. But we all have experienced dozens and dozens of examples of the way that the church impacts people's lives for the better. The nature of their relationships with their family. The nature of their relationships at work and with their friends. Countless examples of ways that lives are being transformed by the church. And so I believe it is important for people of faith to give to the church. And... I so believe in the power of generosity and the way that it can impact the human heart that if you don't believe that the church is the best place to give your money, I think you should still be generous anyway. I think you should still live in a generous manner and find some organization who you feel merits your generosity or some group of people or however you want to distribute that money and that generosity. It is an important concept because it counteracts the lies that money will tell us. We have to be vigilant in this. We have to be intentional because it is always whispering to us that we don't have enough. And it is always whispering to us that if we could get enough, then we could be secure. But James says that that's all a bunch of lies. That to live as people of faith is to live in a way that stewards the resources that God has given us. To live in a way that acknowledges that God is the source of our blessings. We are temporary stewards. And so we have to conduct those resources responsibly and generously. I think that one of the biggest impacts that a church could make, that a people of faith could make, is to live generous, open-handed lives. I think that is one of the biggest things that is missing in our world right now, is everybody is focused on themselves. There's this scarcity mentality across every type of resource, you know, financial, emotional, physical resources. All we're looking at is all of the deficiencies and all of the ways that there isn't enough right now in the world. But could you imagine the impact that just we could make in our community if we became the most generous church in Dallas? Not in quantity, but in quality, in the way that we were so committed to living generous lives. Think about the impact that it could have in your relationships, in your marriage, in your friendships, at your place of employment. Not that you show up and just hand a bunch of money to people, but that's one way. But in the way that you are generous with your time, with your emotional resources, with your presence and your attention, 
for many of you at home with families, you are driven towards acquiring more financial resources. And my guess is you might want to pause and check in with your family because the resource that they might want most from you is your attention and your presence. And so this isn't just a conversation about money, but it's a way that we can live as generous people of faith. I think it's one of the fullest embodiments of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, look at the very nature of Jesus. He gave his life for us. If that is not kind of the pinnacle of what it means to be generous, I don't know what is. And so as people who try to follow after Jesus, will we, will, will we live generously as well? Will we be people who let go, recognize that God is a source, that we are stewards, and allow others to benefit from the generosity that we've received from God as well? That would be my hope and prayer for us as a church. Let me pray for our time together and let's make it so. Gracious God, we love you. And we are grateful for this time together this morning to be reminded of the truth that it is easy to fall into the lies and the gravitational pull that we don't have enough, that we need more, and that we're not secure until we get it. But help us to remember that you are generous with us, that you have provided and will continue to provide all that we need, and that you have called us to be stewards of what you've given us, to share it with others, to make an impact in this world in the way that your son did in the gift of his life to us. God, we pray for this in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we don't want to end our service without just acknowledging all of the ways that you are generous already. For those of you who support the church financially, who have made previous commitments and continue to give and to support the church, we thank you. It's because of your generosity that we are able to make an impact in the lives here in our community and all around the city of Dallas. And so I am grateful for the ways that you are already generous. May we continue to be a generous church. Now, we end our service the same way each and every week with a reminder of who God has called us to be and a reminder that the church is not a building, it's not a service, but it is we living our faith out into the world, out and amidst our daily lives. So we're going to say some words together, and wherever you find yourself this morning, I hope that you'll join us and say these words loud and proud. May the peace of Christ go with us wherever he may send us. May he guide us through the wilderness and protect us through the storm. May our lives be used to share the love that Christ has shown us. May he gather us together once again into these doors. Have a great week. We love you, and we'll see you next time. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.